0: Well, Church, I want to say a good morning to all of you who have tuned in to listen to this live stream. My name is Sam here, and I serve as the pastor of Westland Baptist Church, and I'm so grateful that you're able to join us like this online and to be able to worship the Lord Jesus Christ together. Uh, to those who are Russian-speaking, I want to welcome you this morning and say, Здравствуйте! well to you. And to those who are joining us from the Iranian church, Zendeh, I'd like to say to you, Salam. It's so good to be able to have you guys and uh, to have interpretation and to be able to worship the Lord together. You know, despite the fact that we as brothers and sisters are once again separated because of this COVID crisis, I am so glad to know that For those of us who know Jesus Christ, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Whether that is war or famine or pestilence or death, there is nothing that can take us away from the person of Jesus Christ. You know, for those of us who are gathering here and listening today and worshiping right now, though we speak different languages and come from different backgrounds and cultures, we have one Lord, one faith, and one baptism, and that is what we are able to celebrate today. We do not have multiple and different versions of God's word. We have one word of God, one word of God that will never pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away, but God's word will never pass away, and for that we're eternally grateful. This crisis that's unfolding right now, COVID-19, is really the biggest sort of pandemic or world event that has happened since World War II. It's really the first pandemic in our age of mass social media as well. You know, when the last pandemic struck, H1N1, back in 2009, the world was a very different place. Facebook at that time was only four years old. Twitter was only three years old. Instagram didn't exist. iPhones were just really starting to sell. The BlackBerry actually dominated the smartphone market. Android phones were unknown, having been released some six months earlier. And only geeks actually knew what they were. Now, today, this has completely changed. Now, the ubiquitous smartphone that lives in the pockets of most people around the world has given the average person the ability to see events live unfolding around the world as they occur. And we can see these things through not the lens of the media, but through the lens of ordinary people recording videos on their phones. We're not dependent anymore on the filtered news broadcasts of professional companies or state-run media corporations, but we can actually see the world in the raw footage of people like you and me who are shooting these events as they are happening. So for example, we can look at this COVID crisis and see how Things have happened around the world. In January, we were able to look at footage coming out of hospitals in Wuhan and in China that showed patients spread all throughout these hallways, coughing, feeling sick, and bodies also lying there on the floor. Fast forward a month after that, in February, we were treated to videos afterwards of February and March, videos of an Italian church an individual walking through the rows right by the pews and seeing casket after casket lined up everywhere simply because the morgues had run out of place to store the dead. And all these bodies were awaiting burial, and it took the Italian military to come in and to load these things up on trucks in order to be able to take them away. You know, we've never seen such things before. You know, right now as you think about what is happening In the month of March, as we near the start of April, the United States has had the unfortunate role of becoming the leader in this worldwide epidemic with now the most number of cases and a rapidly spreading virus going throughout all 50 states. In just one week, the state of Michigan has gone from three cases of deaths to now 92 cases of death, which is more than the entirety of B.C., Nobody ever imagined that such a thing could happen to the United States, which is classified by the Global Health Index Security Index of 2019 to be the best country able to handle a pandemic. You know, New York ICU doctor Steve Caspiti has described the coronavirus in New York with these words. It's hell, he says. Biblical. I kid you not. People come in, they get intubated, then they die. And the cycle repeats. is nothing compared to this. You know, listening to the words of the doctor here, we can't help but feel how little we actually know. A week ago, the world was not quite like this, but a week in the coronavirus time has changed so many things. You know, even for us in BC, we are looking at increasing restrictions and a country and a province that is doing its best to contain the outbreak of this epidemic. Now, The restrictions that the government has imposed on gatherings and also workplaces has really shaped and changed our culture. The rise of telecommuting, people who are not going into work anymore but having virtual meetings, kids having playdates over Skype, this has really changed our culture in ways I think that we are only beginning to understand. There are new phrases that our people are using now, such as flattening the curve, and also social distancing that are now just a part of our common everyday speech. The elbow bump, which was once considered a greeting of germaphobes, is now actually looked at as vogue and as a normal greeting. It's now in while the common handshake now is balked at and looked at as something that is potentially lethal. You know, the fact that a person within six feet of you now could actually be a potential assassin, not only of you, but also of your family, has changed how even we receive and give ordinary hugs. It used to be that you gave hugs to people that you enjoyed, but now the act of giving a hug or even offering a hug can actually inspire fear in people instead of comfort. You know, when you think of all these different things, the question for us is, how will this change change the way that we interact with people? What will it mean when perhaps the starting place for conversations between ordinary human beings like you and me now become grounded in fear? You know, in the past, we used to ask the question, can we do this in person instead of online? But now if personal interaction becomes dangerous, the question becomes, do we need to do this in person? You know, furthermore, the language in our culture that was once reserved for people in the military and soldiers has now been applied to those who are in the medical profession, like our doctors and our nurses. They are called frontliners now in our culture, and they are the warriors in our world, not on terror, but on disease. You know, every evening at 7 p.m. now, we hear the sounds in Vancouver. Open up your windows and you can hear as people shout, as they bang pots, as they scream from their balcony tops. A great cheer for all of those who are laboring in the medical field right now, fighting to keep us alive. You know, this war is fought by our medical professionals on the front line, but the truth of the matter is it's actually fought by all of us as well. As average people like you and me, keep six feet from one another, restrict our movements, not allowing ourselves to go out of our homes except to purchase groceries and do essential things, we are actually caring for those who are vulnerable and those who are elderly amongst us and those who will be susceptible to this virus. It takes all of us actually to fight this war on terror. It's not just our professionals who are fighting as warriors, but all of us are standing behind them as well. You know, the question for us, of course, is even as our world is mobilized to fight against this unseen enemy, the question for us as we as Christians need to ask is, how should we as Christians face a crisis of this magnitude? And to answer that question, I think we actually need to turn to the Bible and also to look at Christian history to see how the faithful Christians of the past have actually lived out God's commandments. You know, if you look at The early church, you can see that the early church was no stranger to problems and plagues. During the second century, there was a plague that became known later as the Antonine Plague that actually struck the Roman Empire and some five million people died. But Christians instead took care of the sick. And as a result of their care for the sick and their interaction with these plague victims, this resulted in Christianity actually spreading throughout the Roman Empire as people came to realize that Christians were very different in that they did not view disease in the same way that other people view disease. That is, they thought of diseases as being the product of capricious or angry Roman gods who were simply afflicting people with these illnesses. They realized that in the Christian worldview, disease and plague was the result of a broken creation, a creation that's been badly affected by sin. And as Christians worked and labored, you know, to mitigate the effects of sin, spreading the love of Christ, spreading the grace of God around them, people were treated to a view of a one God that they had not seen before. You know, they were moved by the love of these early Christians and their sacrifice, even as they watched them die, and they turned their lives in droves over to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You know, in the third century, there was also another plague that struck with equal force. It was later called the Plague of Cyprian, and it's said that at the height of this plague, actually 5,000 people were dying in the streets of Rome every single day. Bishop Dionysius actually wrote this about the Christians. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, ministering to them in Christ, and with them departed this life serenely happy, for they were infected with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains." Many in nursing and curing others transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. You know, Dr. Gerald Sitzer in his book, Water from a Deep Well, noted this. Ironically, Christians survived the plagues at higher rates than pagans, even though Christians were more willing to be exposed to the deadly contagion. Now, this is true probably for at least three reasons, as he notes. One is that, of course, caring for other people increases their chance of survival, and if Christians were doing that, it's no wonder that if they cared for one another, Christians and others around them would survive more. The second thing that we learn from this is that Christians who survived the disease probably became immune to it, and as a result of that, as more and more Christians survived this, they became a healthy workforce which allowed more and more Christians to serve the needs of others. And the third thing also we find is that Christians prayed regularly for those who were struck by the plague. They prayed for them and asked the Lord for miracles, and God did deliver miracles. And the pagan world surrounding these people, looking at what the Christians were doing, watching them die, but also watching the miracles of God, were astounded by this and gave their lives to God. They realized that the Christian God was real and superior to their entire pantheon of gods, and they worshipped him for who he was. You know, in 1527, the bubonic plague actually struck the hometown Wittenberg of Martin Luther, the great reformer of the Christian church. And even as people fled in droves from the plague, Martin Luther, because of his convictions, chose to stay even though he was ordered to go. You know, it's recorded that Luther actually stayed with his pregnant wife, Katharina, who stood right by his side, and they didn't just stay in the city. They actually turned their house into basically a ward for all of the sick as the two of them labored to take care of the plague victims. Now, when another pastor wrote to him to ask him whether it was permissible for people to flee or should they have to stay during this time, Luther actually wrote back and he answered this question with biblical reasoning. You know, for Luther, he first began and explained to them that there are a number of reasons why and when it's appropriate to flee and when it's appropriate to actually stay. You know, firstly, it's important to understand that the reason that we should value life is because i think god has designed us and placed in us an innate desire to care for ourselves i don't actually need to convince you that's true but most of us understand that we're good at taking care of ourselves i mean ephesians chapter 5 assumes this verse 29 says for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as christ does the church now, this passage is actually about husbands and wives, how they're to relate to each other. And the point is to say that if you're a husband, you should care for your wife in the same way you care for your own flesh. Because what's true is that nobody ever hates themselves. So care for your spouse. But see, the assumption there is we know how to take care of ourselves. You know, the second thing here after that first impulse that's placed in us, and that's a good thing to protect ourselves, the second thing is this. The scriptures are actually full of examples of godly people who flee when there are times of difficulty. For example, you could read about Moses who fled from Pharaoh during a time in which Pharaoh was looking to try to kill him. You read about David, actually, when he was being persecuted by Saul and also hunted down by his own son, Absalom. He runs away from that time. You read about Jacob as well, who fled to Egypt in a time of famine to preserve himself and also his family. You know, Jesus actually says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 23, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. And you see this also in the life of Saul of Tarsus before he goes on to become the great missionary. You know, he actually, uh, is struck by, uh, by his encounter with the living Christ and he becomes blind. And then after Ananias heals him, we discover that Paul begins to grow very, very rapidly in the Lord. And as a result of his passion and confounding the Jews talking about who Jesus is, his old brothers turn on him and they want to kill him. But when Paul discovers what is about to happen to him, the scriptures record for us that he actually flees the city of Damascus, going away at nighttime, being helped by a number of disciples, being lowered by a basket down the wall. So see, all this to say is that the preserving of life is a good thing, generally speaking. But however, if we have to preserve life, while breaking one of God's laws, then we need to consider the priority that God's laws actually have. You know, you and I as Christians cannot claim to believe and practice the first and great commandment, that is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength. When push comes to shove, a person puts a gun to our head for our faith and says, do you believe in Jesus? And we say, no, I actually don't. How do we actually speak truthfully that we believe in that first and great commandment you know jesus warns us in the scriptures that whoever denies him before men he also will deny before his father Now, the coronavirus, just to make clear, is not a religious persecutor. The coronavirus does not make distinctions between people who are religious and go after them and people who are irreligious. This coronavirus is a product of a fallen world, a natural disaster, a natural evil that affects all people equally. So because the coronavirus is not a religious persecutor, before we just pack up and run, we need to ask this question. If my neighbor, who is also equally likely to be affected by this coronavirus, is suffering and will not be able to run, does my withdrawal, my running away, actually result in the abandonment of my sick neighbor, who actually is unable to run away, will it result in more suffering for them if I choose to actually withdraw myself from this out of fear for my own life? And if so, I think the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 25, verses 42 to 43 should ring in our ears. Listen to what Jesus has to say. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. You know what this text is saying to us? It's saying... How can we say that we love God and also love our neighbors as ourselves when we abandon them to save our own skins in a time of absolute crisis? I mean, don't even the Gentiles and the tax collectors do the same? If we do that, what more are we doing than other people are doing? You know, to abandon them would actually be to despise the Lord Jesus Christ, who spilled his very own blood for their souls, to offer to them his gift of salvation. Now, if there is no great need, and fleeing doesn't bring any detriments to other people, then I think fleeing or staying is best left to a believer's conscience. But if you're pulling away, results in an increased load or increased suffering in the lives of other people around you, whether Christian or non-Christian, then we cannot simply run as Christians. How we serve others during this time actually shows what we really believe inside our hearts. First you know, John chapter 3, verse 17 says this, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Now, don't just think that because you have God that all of a sudden you actually don't need medical masks anymore and you don't need to wash your hands and you can live however you want because your faith is going to protect you somehow. See, if you think that strong faith actually makes you immune to the coronavirus or germs, why stop there? Why not cut off your food and water as well and see if your strong faith will help you survive? See, it's really important to understand that God uses ordinary means to care for us as well as the miraculous. That's actually why we should practice social distancing, that's why we should wash our hands, and this is why we should take germs seriously. So we must not put God to the test by placing ourselves in harm's way and testing him, much in the same way that Satan urged Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 to test the Lord his God by having him throw himself off of the temple. You know, Jesus didn't take the bait with that because he knew what the problem was that, with that was. But for us as Christians, we know we're not supposed to put the Lord our God to the test. However, if in the course of living as faithful Christians, we do end up in situations that are particularly dangerous to us, we go towards the promises of God. We serve and do God's will by serving the poor and the needy, and then we cling to promises like he has given us in Psalm chapter 41, verses 1 to 3. Let me read it for you. You can see it there on your screen. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. You know, for those of you who are listening to this right now, Those of you who have walked years and decades with the Lord Jesus Christ, don't you hear words like this and feel, that's so true? Don't you actually have stories of God delivering you, healing you, miraculously protecting you and providing for you all for his own glory? But what about, you say, maybe the Christians who die as a result of serving the sick, or they die when they're out on the mission field? What are we supposed to make of that? Isn't this psalm speaking falsely then? Are the promises of God, have they failed? And the answer to that, I would say, is no. And the reason I think we can say that is because if you read the psalms as a whole, you will realize that the promises of God are not just restricted to this life, but must be considered in the light of the eternal life in the presence of God. Yes, Christians may actually die at the hands of their enemies or in serving the sick as they contract those diseases. But at the moment that you depart this life and you open your eyes, you will wake up in the land of the King of Kings and you will see God actually face to face. And those of us who die in service to our King, the Scriptures make it very clear that ultimately we are delivered as we go to the King's land where we will live forever in perfect peace, never again to know sickness, suffering, and death all of those who have died, don't they stand in heaven in their glorious new immortal bodies, never having to worry about the worries and cares of this world? They do. We know that. That's why we always say those who have departed, those who have left this life, are actually the most blessed of all people. We are the ones who grieve that they are gone, but they don't grieve anymore because their tears have been wiped away from their eyes at the side by the hand of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, the Bible assumes that the promises that are given to the godly aren't just to be fulfilled in this life, but also in the life to come. Read First Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, and this is what it says. Godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. See, If you died and you went to heaven, would you look at God and say to him, God, you said in Psalm chapter 41, this promise that you would actually heal me. But now I'm actually stuck here in this immortal body surrounded by all these saints and in these angels in the land of heaven. Why didn't you let me live longer in a place of sin and death? I don't think you'd say that. It's like this, if your parents offered to buy you a new Toyota Corolla for your graduation, and then your graduation day comes and you pass your exams and your parents say to you, son, daughter, I'm I'm so sorry that we didn't get you the Corolla, but we actually got you a Ferrari instead, would you look at them and say, mom, dad, you're liars. You break your promises. You promised me a Corolla. What's this Ferrari doing here? No way. You wouldn't say that. Why? Because you know the value of that second car. You see, Do you see why we actually struggle with death? We struggle with death because we don't see the value of it. We don't see death the way that God sees death. You know, Philippians chapter 1, verse 21 says this, for me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And you look at the Apostle Paul and you say, Paul, Paul how, can, how can you say something like that? In what way is death a gain? You know, verse 23, he further explains this. My desire, he says, is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. And herein lies the answer to that. How, you ask, is death gain? How can Christians look at death and say, death is gain for me? And the answer given in verse 23 is because death is gain because we go to be with Christ and we gain Him. And gaining Jesus Christ is far better than anything else in the world. And if you truly believe that with all of your heart, Though you might tremble in your day of struggle, ultimately you can face anything that's thrown at you because your eternity and your future is secure. You know, although we might worry actually about those we might leave behind, you know, a spouse or children, wondering what it's going to be like if they grow up without daddy or they grow up without, or a wife goes on without her husband. Ultimately, the question for us is this. If I die because I'm doing what is right, Either at the hands of a terrorist who wants to kill me for my faith or I die at the hands of a virus because I have been serving the sick and the poor in Jesus' name. Can I trust that the Lord who saw it fit to take me at this time will take care of my children and my wife or my parents or those who are dependent on me? Can I trust that ultimately at the end of the day, the great provider is better than me at knowing what to do with those whom I love and can no longer serve with my own hands because I have been called home to be with him. That's the question for us. Can we trust God, actually, in this? Can we trust God that he knows exactly what he is doing in this coronavirus epidemic? And I think the answer for us is, yes, we must. You know, this is why Luther could write these words when he was asked what he would do during the plague crisis. He said this, I shall ask God to mercifully to protect us. Then I shall fumigate, help purify the air, administer medicine and take it. I shall avoid places and persons where my presence is not needed in order not to become contaminated and thus perchance inflict and pollute others and so cause their deaths as a result of my negligence. If God should wish to take me, he will surely find me, and I have done what he has expected of me, and so I am not responsible for either my own death or the death of others. If my neighbor needs me, however, I shall not avoid place or person. I shall go freely as stated above. See, this is such a God-fearing faith, because it is neither brash nor foolhardy and does not tempt God you think that social distancing is a new thing? Martin Luther was practicing it 500 years ago when the plague came and hit him. And he saw social distancing in that time as an act of love for his neighbors saying that I will not negligently cause their deaths. You know, what we do and how we live as Christians does matter because it affects the lives of people all around us as well. You know, I spoke to a Christian doctor just this week who is currently on leave, but when he returns because of his specialty, he knows that he's going to be working in the ICU with COVID-19 patients. He understands that he, of all people, is actually at a higher risk of contracting this illness simply because of the nature of his work. And he knows that if he becomes a statistic, maybe one of the 10%, his lungs could also fill with inflammation and pus, and he could very well die from it. You know, being a front lighter is extremely sobering. You know, I watched a video last night of a Vancouver general hospital nurse uh, teacher telling people, crying there on the camera on YouTube, basically saying, begging people to take this seriously, simply because she knows of people who are suffering, healthcare workers who are either infected or feel that they're going to be infected because of the spread of the disease. This is real. So people, for example, like this doctor, you know, uh, how do they go in and face this? He's drawn up his will, knowing that every day when he goes on and puts on his N95 battle mask, you know, and his scrubs or his biomedical battle suit, one of these battles might actually turn out to be his last. But why does he go? Why will he go? He goes, as well as other Christian doctors and nurses, into the thick of this because the love of Jesus Christ compels them to do it. And the Lord will honor their sacrifice and the risk that they take for the sake of his name. You know, it's actually impossible to completely explain or for me to be able to say, why exactly has COVID-19 hit us in this way? You know, the truth of the matter, is only actually God knows, and I don't dare to presume to speak on all of the reasons why God has brought this about at this time in, part in human history. But what I'd like to do actually for us is to give you five things, five things that we as Christians can actually cling to during this period as we think about this crisis. Number one is this, the coronavirus reminds us that this world of sin is not our home. In the book of 1 Peter refers to believers as sojourners and exiles here on this earth and Ephesians chapter 5 verse 16 reminds us that the days are actually evil in which we are living Now, by evil days, the Bible is not saying that these are days that are full of only crying and mourning and that there's not a glimmer of sunshine or hope at all. That's not what it's saying. But what it's saying is that the common human experience is rather overshadowed by trials and difficulties. So that when you look at all of it, we would say that these are difficult times in which we live. These times include for us temptations to sin, financial disasters, unexpected outbreaks of diseases, all these sorts of things that happen in a fallen world. You know, when you're young, actually, you don't think about this very much. Because as you celebrate birthday after birthday when you're young, every year results in you getting stronger, learning how to do new things, and gaining new freedoms. But then after you're like, I don't know, 22, 23, 25 maybe or so, um, every year that passes, actually, your physical strength begins to diminish. Your mind goes a little slower. Your eyes have a little trouble seeing closer and closer. You know, all these things happen to us because we live in fallen bodies that are affected by the curse of sin. And as a result of that, as more and more candles pile up on that birthday cake, we stop wanting to count and we realize that all the gains that we made in the early years of our lives begin to be taken away one by one as either death takes them, old age takes them, or unexpected circumstances take them. Old pleasures actually become less satisfying and all of the happiness that we once enjoyed becomes tinged, you know, with sadness and irreparable loss. And yet, as Augustine said, the world, he says, is so alluring that no one is willing to finish a life of sin you know i read that quote i'm like it's so true how much we cling to this life despite the difficulties that are in it you know friends know what the coronavirus is for us it's a helpful diagnostic tool for us to use and to look at our lives and to ask ourselves this question what are we living for Are we citizens of this earth, or are we truly citizens of heaven? Where is our ultimate joy and treasure to be found? Is it on this earth, in the things that we enjoy so much, or is it in heaven? Is Jesus Christ our treasure, or is it our own ambitions, our own plans, and our own things that we want to be able to do? What am I living for, and where am I going? I'm so grateful, at least for this, that even in the midst of all this craziness, we are reminded through this that this world is not our home. You know, the second thing that we can say here is that the coronavirus reminds us that we believe in absolute, not relative morality. You know, Dr. Michael Kruger has written a very fascinating article called, How a You-Do-You Culture Has Made Us Vulnerable to the Coronavirus. And he notes in his article how these spring break party goers in Florida were absolutely ignoring the bans on large gathering and just partying it up. In one case, there was a young man who said this, If I get corona, I get corona, and at the end of the day, I'm not going to let it stop me from partying. Whatever happens, happens. In other words, it's, I'm just going to do me, and you do you, and all will be well. You know, this is a prime example of the relative morality worldview that reigns here in North America. But you know what the problem with this is? Is that if we actually truly practice this relative morality worldview, we would absolutely destroy ourselves. It would be unsustainable, such a worldview. And no one actually truly lives like this. You know, imagine if you have parents who lived by a morally relative worldview, and a set of parents looked at their children and said, you do you and I will do me. And the child says, but I'm hungry. And the parent looks back and says, well, if you can't fix your own breakfast, then you deserve to starve. I'm hungry. I'm going to eat first. You know, we would look at such parents like that and say, I'm reporting you to the ministry. That's irresponsible. How dare you do something like that? When we say stuff like that, what are we saying? We are saying that we believe there are absolute standards that must actually be followed. And the question is, where do we get such standards from? You know, our society would truly collapse if we allowed people to live by that, you do you and I will do me. You know, a couple of weeks ago, there was a Vancouver couple who made the headlines because they had driven around in a pickup truck to all the local Costco's and they bought out all the Lysol wipes and were reselling them on Amazon for four times the price. And then I also read about another couple around um, the interior of BC who had gone into a local grocery store and bought out the entire meat section so there was nothing left and checked out from it. And you could just go online and you read about the absolute disgust that people have with such uh, individuals. Some of the comments made in, uh, and given to them were death threats as well. The question is, why do we react so viscerally? And I think the reason that we do so is because we do believe in absolute morals. We do believe that there are some things that are absolutely right and some things are wrong. And we expect that such people who do things that we consider to be absolutely despicable or harmful to other people or robbing other people of the ability to survive, such individuals are absolutely wrong. That's what our hearts tell us is true. That's what our consciences say. But I understand that, you know, in a worldview that we live in, a secular, materialistic worldview, moral absolutes actually don't truly exist. All you can have is relative morality. If we are simply the creatures that have ascended to the top of the food chain because we were the strongest and we got here by brute force, why is it wrong then for some who are strong to be able to stomp on the weak? Our hearts and our consciences tell us that's wrong, but in a purely materialistic worldview, if that's how we arrived here, how can we truly say that that's either right or wrong? You know, the Bible offers us a very different picture. The Bible tells us that there is a God, and he has absolute standards, and that the call to love our neighbor as ourselves is for all people. To sacrifice and to live like the Lord Jesus Christ is for all people. God will hold us accountable, not to the standards we devise in our culture, but he will hold us accountable to his righteous standards. You know, if you do you, the coronavirus and other things will devastate us. But if I serve you, following the laws of God, and social distance, wash my hands, and I don't take negligence, if I serve the poor, if I live according to the way that God wants me to live, we will survive, and we will honor the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we think about it, isn't that what Jesus did on the cross for us? Because Jesus actually said, your needs before my comforts. That's the reason we're alive. Number three. The coronavirus reminds us that Christian fellowship is actually a great privilege and a joy. You know, I've received messages and comments from church members and texts to my phone just of how much they've missed our church gatherings. You know, many times people don't know how sweet something is until they actually lose it. You know, the German theologian and pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer was imprisoned and executed by the Nazis, actually led a small community in which they did life together. And he wrote this about his experience of his time being with other Christians. He said, It is easily forgotten that the fellowship of Christian believers is a gift of grace, a gift of the kingdom of God that any day may be taken from us, that the time that still separates us from utter loneliness may be brief indeed. Therefore, let him who until now has had the privilege of living a common Christian life with other Christians, praise God's grace from the bottom of his heart. Let him thank God on his knees and declare, It is grace, nothing but grace, that we are allowed to live in community with Christian believers. You know, when my family is away, even for a day, I actually miss them, and I want to be with them. Brothers and sisters, when all this is said and done, and we can finally meet together here in our church building once again, I guarantee you that you and I will appreciate way more deeply the privilege that we have as Christians to be able to freely assemble and to worship together. You know, we are going to, cry together. We're going to hug each other. We're going to eat together and have meals. And I think on that Sunday, few of us are actually wanting to go home, will want to go home. And we will celebrate what a privilege it is to be able to gather together like this. And I think we will also feel extremely deeply for our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world, who, because of people who hate Jesus Christ, will not allow them to gather You know, how great of God in this time period of crisis to teach us this lesson, to love those who are around the world and cannot gather simply because people will not let them do so. I'm thankful that God has given us a profound appreciation and love for those of us who are persecuted in the body of Christ. Number four, the coronavirus reminds us that we are to trust God even when we don't fully understand what he is doing. You know, when crisis comes, I'm often asked as a pastor, why did God allow this? You know, the answer to that question is, I actually don't know. Who has the mind of God to be able to divulge his great and secret purposes for why he does the things that he does? But although I don't know exactly what God is doing, I do know that he is a good God and that because he is on our side, we don't ultimately need to be afraid. You know, when young kids are actually getting their shots, they can't understand when you talk to them about the importance of these shots. And at the end of the day, you simply just have to grab them and hold on to them, even as they shout and they want to get away from you, and they don't like this idea of a big needle sticking them in the arm. But the truth is, because they love you and they trust you, even though they might wail and complain, they will stay safe there in your arms as you hold them until that shot is done. You know, that really is a picture of us and God, isn't it? That when we go through deep distress in our lives that we know God as a perfect physician and a loving God has brought on us, we might tremble and feel uncertain, but we look to God as our Father and we say, I don't understand how this shot is going to help me right now, but I will trust you because you are my Father. You know, you see that in the Bible as well, in the book of Habakkuk. in the story of Habakkuk is of the prophet complaining to God because of all the sin that he sees in Israel and all this wickedness that is running about. How terrible Israel's become. And God's response to Habakkuk is essentially this. Watch this, Habakkuk. I'm about to bring in the Babylonian army right now to absolutely level Israel. And Habakkuk looks at that and he says, I don't understand how that's a solution. Why would you take an even more wicked nation to punish the wicked nation of Israel? But as Habakkuk thinks and as he speaks and as God speaks as well, he comes to this conclusion. He, in his mind, he says, at the end of the day, Verse 17 to 18 of the last chapter of Habakkuk. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no fruit, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Do you know what he's talking about here? He's talking about absolute economic devastation. No farm foods. The figs are not giving anything. The produce of the olives fail. And even the animals are failing as well. He says, even if there's widespread economic devastation, this is what I will do. I will trust in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. I will trust him even when there is no earthly reason to be able to trust him because simply of who he is. And that's the call for us as well. You know, when I think about the major events of world history, some of them which were extremely evil and hard to see how any good can come out of them, even after many years, though, I think we can see some of the benefits that God has brought about. For example, you think about the time in which the Romans had gone about conquering most of the Mediterranean and a lot of the known world at the time. Because of the Roman army conquest, the Jews were actually living under their rule and their law, and they were anxious to be free. And you ask the question, how was that a good thing for the people of God? Now for those of us looking back on it, after Jesus Christ died and then he rose again, we realize that the infrastructure that the Romans built, all of these Roman roads that span all of Europe, and moving out into Asia were perfect conduits for the gospel to actually be taken along these trade routes and spread to a lot of Asia Minor and different places. Because of the evil of the Roman conquest and the disasters that were brought about by their army, the gospel of Jesus Christ was able to spread across their road systems and save many people. I think the same thing is true also about the Cultural Revolution of China. Many, many people died under the reforms issued by Chairman Mao Zedong. But even though many people died, one thing that was put in place in China was the standardization of the Chinese language. Mandarin became the dominant language, and as a result of Mandarin being the common language of over a billion people, as the gospel was preached in Mandarin Chinese, it spread like wildfire throughout China. You know, today, you know, missiologists tell us that there are over 60, 70 million believers in China, many who live underground because of fear of religious persecution. That's twice the number of people that Canada has in total. How many of us could have looked back on that period of bloodshed and thought, God, I know you're gonna, how you're going to use this for good. None of us. But we knew that he would simply because this is what God does with all things in the world. You know, when I look at what's happening now with the coronavirus, and I see churches everywhere opening up live streams, allowing people to access their services with just a click of a button, I can't help but think of the type of impact that this will have on our world. You know, some of you today who are listening to this stream actually right now and watching this might have logged on for the first time to check this out. You would never otherwise have set foot inside of a church because you are concerned about either how awkward it would be, you knew no one there, but you're here today listening to this simply because you have a computer and a mouse. You know, if you are here today, do you realize that God has literally moved heaven and earth and the entire world to bring you here today to hear the words of life, to hear about the gospel of Jesus Christ so that you could have salvation for your soul? Do you hear this and heal your heart actually stirred by the word of God and the God of all the universe loves you enough to do this? You know, the fifth thing I like to say and it's connected to this is this, number five. The coronavirus shows the world the infinite value of our God. You know, when we as Christians actually labor during this period to care for the wounded, the sick, and the dying, and to serve our neighbors either physically or spiritually, do you know what we communicate? We communicate to them the infinite value of our God, even as we sacrifice our own time, our comforts, and our energy, and perhaps even our very own lives. We model for them The portrait of an invisible God who came to earth and died on the cross for their sins. You know, the Bible says this in John 15, verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friend's. You know, Giuseppe Berardelli was an Italian priest who was on a ventilator that his church people had purchased for him. However, because of the spread of COVID-19 in Italy, he actually chose to give up his ventilator to a younger person who he didn't even know yet so that they could live. And that priest died as a result of that. He was 72 years old. You know, friends, do you know why we're actually moved by incredible stories like that? It's because deep down inside of our hearts, we're actually drawn like magnets to stories of self-sacrifice, of crazy love, and also of, of things that demonstrate to us that life is more than just living for ourselves. And we are drawn to these stories because they come from the fact that we are made in the image of God. And when we see images reflected of this infinitely loving God, this God who is merciful and gracious to all people, we cannot help but have our hearts stirred by this. You know what the gospel teaches us? The gospel teaches us that we have a disease far worse than COVID-19 called sin. And without divine intervention, the absolute hope of recovery is absolutely zero. No chance, it's terminal. And there's no prescription in the world, no amount of good works, no amount of good things that we can do to cure ourselves from this disease. There is nothing that can redeem us from our rebellion against God. But the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ, who is the great physician, took our case and he saw us. And even though we were an enemy lying there in the sick bed, he chose to heal us actually at the cost of his very own life. Jesus Christ is the only person in the world who was a living organ donor. He took his lungs, he took his heart, he took his very own body and gave it to us. He took his spiritual life and gave it to us so that when God looks at us, he sees not our disease-ridden, sinful body, but he sees the perfect body of his Son, the, the life of perfect righteousness. And he took all that disease and all that disease Jesus absorbed into himself. And as he gasped for air on that cross, as he bore the wrath of God very much in the same way that COVID 19 patients gasp for air as they battle against this disease, the Son of God died. But even though he died through his death, he secured our ultimate victory. Jesus Christ died because he took our diseases onto his own body. He let the effects of sin kill him so that we would not one day have to die in the eyes of an almighty God who will one day judge us for our sins. You know, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ traded places with us. He took his perfect health and gave it to us and took our disease and took it into himself. He gave us the ventilator so that we could survive and that with his death, he secured for us in eternity. You know what's so remarkable about Jesus Christ? It's that Jesus Christ didn't come into the world to make good pe- uh, bad people good. He came into the world actually to give life to the dead. And this is something that no doctor in the world can ever do. Only our Lord Jesus Christ. We were terminal, but because of his sacrifices, we can be forgiven of our sins and have eternal life with him. You know, for many in our world, the coronavirus is frightening because it's the silent assassin that can destroy all of our best laid plans and ambitions with a death sentence. But the truth is, Jesus Christ is far greater than any disease and any illness in the world. And even if we are struck down in a service to our King or struck down by a disease, Jesus Christ has promised for those who believe in him to raise them from the dead and to one day be at his side. You know, if you don't know Jesus, I would invite you to turn your life over to him take your anxiety take your fears and throw them at his feet and seize the life that he offers to you as you bow your knee before him and humble yourself and turn yourself over to him for those of us who are christians you know if you're a doctor you're a nurse, you're in the health profession, don't shrink back. Go out and serve knowing that your eternity is secure. If you're a mathematician, you are a skilled engineer, and you can build things, go out into the world, look for ways that you can build ventilators to build tools that will help ease human suffering. You know, if you can calculate and things, things, do statistics to help people understand what will happen. If you can clean and disinfect, and that's your particular skill, do so. Teach others to wash their hands, disinfect doorknobs so that other people will be less likely to pick up the virus. Serve this world, serve the elderly, all in Jesus' name, and let the world see the awesome power of our God, emboldening average and ordinary people to the glory of his name. Go out, my brothers and sisters, those of you who are living here, who are listening to this, and go out and live as Christians, and let the world see the God that you serve and glorify him for who he is. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I'm so grateful, God, for this time that we've had together to look at church history and to think about how you have inspired your people to serve in the midst of plagues and other crises in the past. Father, I pray you would strengthen us from your word, oh God, to be bold and courageous, but not foolish. Help us, God, as we pick up even our protective equipment, go out to meet people who absolutely need to be helped like the elderly to get groceries, not to be afraid, O God, but to go in confidence that whatever happens to us, O God, comes from the loving hand of our God. Father, you are a magnificent Savior. And I ask, O Lord, that even as we live, even as we walk through these uncertain times, we will remember that the Good Shepherd guides us through the valley of the shadow of death. So would you help us, God, to honor you and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and to find courage not in ourselves, but in our King who died for us. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.